Welcome to Cornerstone Reformed Baptist Church. Thank you for using and sharing our resources. What you're about to hear is God's Word from one of our teaching elders. We trust that God's Word will inspire, instruct, and bless you. For further teachings or information on our ministry, please visit us on our website at cornerstonerbc.com. That's cornerstonerbc.com. John chapter 12 from verse 27. This is the word of the Lord. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it. And I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said it had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, We have heard from the Lord that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while, little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he's going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. Amen. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Brothers and sisters and friends, let's join together before our Lord, asking his blessing upon our time together to bless his word and the preaching of his word. Lord, we come before you in awe and reverence. We come before you knowing how weighty this moment is, how glorious this moment is. It's not because the person who stands behind this pulpit, it's not the building, it's not the chairs, it's nothing in this physical environment. It is the fact that we have gathered in the name of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ, that we've come in faith, Right now we are prepared in faith to sit under your word, the preaching of your word, the treasure that you've given to our souls to feed us, to reveal who you are in all your glory, to show us who we are and how needy we are of you, show us the beauty of our Savior. Oh Lord, we pray, give us hearts to receive from you this afternoon. Help us to apprehend this moment by faith. Please, Lord, I pray. We don't, want to, we don't want to be doing this in our flesh. We don't want to do this because these are the things that we do this time every Sunday. We don't want to go through the motions. Lord, we pray that this time would be a time that you feed us, a time that we come to you with hearts of worship to exalt your holy name and to say, here we are. We're here to receive from you. Feed us and help us to obey. Show us the beauty of Christ, we ask. I pray that you would give me clarity. Give me the words to speak. Pray that you would be with my brothers and sisters, Lord, as they receive. Remove any distractions from this place and help us, Lord. Help us to receive from your hand whatever you wish to, to give. And help us to receive it joyfully. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, beloved, I, I intend by God's grace to continue in the gospel according to John, the fourth gospel, from where we left off last week. And where we got to last week is verse 20, 27. In fact, our Lord and the setting hasn't changed. He's still there in Jerusalem, very likely in the temple space, speaking to a substantial crowd who had followed him and, and likely following him every day as he's in the temple precinct, hearing the Lord Jesus Christ speak 
And he's speaking to them on a topic in particular, and that is the kingdom that he has come to inaugurate. That's the detail that the Lord has been speaking to these people from verse 23, because they've claimed him to be king. They've declared him to be the king of Israel. And now Jesus says, yes, I am the king of Israel, but let me tell you about my kingdom. And as I've, I've said over the last few weeks, that the kingdom that Jesus has come to inaugurate, the kingdom that he's come to, to establish is unlike any kingdom of this world. It's a spiritual kingdom. And he is unlike any king that the people of Israel has ever seen. Because he has not come to sit physically on the throne of David there in Jerusalem to rule and reign. But rather, his rule and reign will be over the people's hearts and over the people's minds. It's a fact that the people in the day and his listeners, the audience, have not, have not come to grasp as of yet. But they will. They will because Jesus is going to be crystal clear before the end of this chapter. They're going to know exactly what king he is and what kingdom he's come to establish. But as, as for now, in their mind, as far as they're concerned, the, the Jews' obvious next step for this king, Jesus, would be what? It would be for him to rule and reign in Jerusalem. He would first need to depose of the current rulers of the day. He, he would need to get rid of the of the oppressive rulers that they see to be Rome, to dethrone the oppressive rulers and the authorities, the enemies of God being Rome and, and the emperor of Rome. And then he would establish himself and enthrone, be enthroned himself on the throne to rule in, in righteousness as their king. They actually weren't at all wrong in their thinking. In fact, this is exactly what's going to take place. The Messianic king has come. To conquer the enemy. He has come to rule. And he has come to reign. But the detail about who the enemy is, is where the confusion lies. Little did these people know that the greatest enemy of God's people is not Rome. It's not the emperor of Rome. Rather, the greatest enemy of the people of God is the spiritual forces of evil and cosmic powers of darkness behind the pagan rulers of this world. Thus, the spiritual kingdom he has come to establish. The enemy, this messianic king, has come to dethrone. He's the god of this age. He's the prince of the power of the air. Or as Jesus would say a little further in this chapter, he's the ruler of this world. Jesus Christ, the son of God, has come to crush the head of the ancient serpent, Satan himself. And he will. He will. He'll conquer the enemy, but he won't conquer the enemy through conventional warfare. He'll conquer the enemy through his shed blood upon that cross. And it's in light of this reality. It's in light of what he is yet to accomplish in a day, two, maybe three at, at the latest, that our Lord's soul is deeply troubled. And that's as far as we got last week. My intention is to continue from there and to take you all the way to verse 30, if the Lord permits. So let's put our heads down to the text and let's start reading from verse 27 again to get the context in our minds. Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and I... And I will glorify it again. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, the Lord says. You see, if there is a passage in the word of God that so clearly puts the, the heart of our Savior on display for all to see, it's, it's this. His heart is on display here. Our Lord's heart is on display. We see the agony of soul. And I took you through the agony of Christ, the troubling spirit, the troubling soul that he's experiencing even now. I took you through that last week because of what will take place. What would be required for him to, to, to accomplish in order for him to be the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And rather than shrink back in, in terror, our Lord deliberates in, in, in his mind and in his heart recognizing the pain that is to come, recognizing that path of suffering that he'll need to endure. And then he opens his mouth and he says these words, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but it's for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. 
When it's all said and done, when I've gone down that path of suffering, when I've, when I've bore the, the wrath of God upon unrighteousness, when I've gone through the difficulty and the tribulation and the persecutions, when I've gone through all that, when it's all done, Father, be glorified in utter anguish at what lies ahead. For Christ, it's all worth it, beloved. It's all worth it for Jesus Christ, our Lord, if the Father is glorified. Yes, beloved, we read in Hebrews chapter 12 that, that it's spoken of Jesus for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. It's so true that he knows he will be glorified and it will be glorious joy for him. But what we have here in John chapter 12 is the very foundation. It's the very bedrock of what's going on in the heart of our Savior. It's the very essence that justifies in the, in the mind of the Son of God why he would suffer horrifically and lay down his life for sinners. This is his motivation. This is the heart of our Savior put on display. This is why he will endure what is lying for him ahead. For this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. The absolute highest end, the greatest good in the heart and in the mind of our Savior. Every tear that will come down and run down his cheek, every drop of blood, Every cry of pain, the imaginable, unimaginable reality that, that he would be made sin when he knew no sin upon that cross. Bearing the wrath of God upon the unrighteousness that is deserved of his people, that's you brethren and mine. To have a disposition of God who, who forsakes him as we saw last week. And to pour his righteous indignation upon sin and unrighteousness when, when the son has only ever known the, the disposition of the father that is, that is pleased with his every move. Always being the object of God's love. All that in the eyes of our Savior is worthwhile if the father's name is glorified. The glory of God is paramount in the thinking of Christ. The glory of God is paramount. It's supreme. It's primary in the thinking of Christ. We've, we've all come to terms with that word glory. We're very familiar with the word glory. Often, quite often in Christian circles, we use that word, and quite often, even more often yet, I think, we, we use that word in our prayers, glorify your name, O oh Lord. I preached several times on the glory of God and on several occasions because there's many nuances in Scripture that speak to glory and the glory of God. And I've, over the years, I've brought some of those up for us to look at in previous sermons. Because if we don't have a basic understanding of the term glory and how it's used in Scripture, we, we may get confused as we open up our Bibles and come across it so often through the Old and in the new. For example, we know that God is unique in his glory. All glory belongs to him. No one can take away from his glory. And no one can add to his glory. He's perfectly glorious. We know that much. So how do we understand when scripture commands us to give glory to God? Psalm 29. Well, how do we understand the verb, uh, like, like in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, when we're, when we're told, glorify God in your bodies? Can we add to his glory? Can we actually give God glory so that he can take something off us and, and then he has something that he didn't have before? Well, it may be helpful to remind ourselves some of the basics of how this word is used in Scripture. At the most basic level, beloved, the word doxa, which is translated... Glory is defined like this, to render esteem, to honor, to exalt. Now synonyms for this word that you and I will come across and you hear me use them quite often is magnificence, it's splendor, it's, it's even beauty or, or even majesty. These, 
These are synonyms used for, for glory, and they're good synonyms. And that's a good definition, and it's a good foundation for us to start from. But it may also be helpful for us to understand the origin of the word. It may, it may deepen our understanding somewhat, I hope. You see, the authors of the Septuagint, that is the translators, of, the Greek translators of the old Hebrew Bible back in, say, 200, 250 BC, they used the word, or they used the word doxa to replace the original word in Hebrew, which is kabud, or kavud, you can actually pronounce it, meaning glory in, in Hebrew. In Isaiah chapter 42, a, a verse I'm assuming most of us are familiar with, we read, Yahweh is my name. I will give my kabud to no other. I'll give my glory to no other. The definition of the term kabud is literally weighty. That's what it means. It, weighty. Substance. It means heaviness. There's a heaviness about that word. In fact, at times, this word kabud is actually translated heavy in the psalms thinking back to ancient days one's net worth was determined by the sum of his assets real estate couldn't be weighed we know that much but the rest could the amount of animals they had the gold and the silver the precious stones the amount of grain they had in their storehouses the greater the weight of one's assets was correlated with the, his greatness himself how great he is, how glorious he is, is determined by the weight of his assets. Glory is weightiness. It speaks of value. We know it today as maybe net worth. But it might also be helpful to know the verb. The verb from which kabud is derived. You might say to glorify, if you will. Literally, it's the effect a heavy boulder has upon soft earth when dropped. Think of a big, massive boulder and drop it on the earth. The effect that it makes, the impression, the, the, the crater it makes is the verb form of kabood. That impression is not the boulder itself, right? The impression is not the boulder. The boulder falls, it makes an impression in the ground, and the deeper in the impression, the, the heavier the boulder. But that impression, although not being the boulder itself, it bears resemblance to the boulder. It communicates something of truth about the boulder. It reflects the size. It reflects the shape. The deeper the crater is a reflection of its weight, the boulder's weight also. You see, the heavy boulder may have now been removed from the crater and it's no longer in sight. But when one witnesses that impression it made through contact, where the boulder made contact with that soft ground and it's made this impression, this crater, it reveals something about the boulder, even if the boulder is not physically there. Passers-by will, will witness the crater and they would say, why, that must have been an impressive boulder that hit the ground. Because it's made such a striking impression. You see, with that in mind, I want to take you somewhere else. I want to take you to think about the glory of God in two very broad ways. The glory of God is very nuanced in the Word of God. There's no way we can go through and, the, and exhaust what it means in, the, in a sermon or two or three. But, but let me just give you a category, two categories to think about the glory of God. Just two categories, very broad categories. The first is the intrinsic glory of God, or the inherent glory of God. And the other is the ascribed glory of God. The intrinsic glory of God is the inherent greatness, the, the majesty of God, the splendor, the absolute magnificence of his being. It, it, it's, it's who he is. It's, it's that boulder, if you will, and I say that respectfully. He's weighty, he's exalted. He's all beautiful. He's wonderful. In the manifold perfections of all his attributes and properties, God is all glorious. He is impressive in and of himself. He is glorious. That's who he is in and of himself. It's who he is. As intrinsically all glorious, the invisible God manifests or displays his intrinsic glory in what he does. The work of his hands, 
And when he works, he leaves an impression. And that impression, beloved, is a glorious impression. Whether it's his manifold or manifest presence, or when he opens his mouth and he speaks like we have here in John chapter 12, or when he acts or creates everything he makes contact with, everything, without exception, bears witness of his weightiness. It bears witness of his majesty. It bears witness of his greatness, his goodness, his perfect attributes. Whatever the Lord God, the only true God, makes contact with, it bears witness about something of himself. It communicates something of Yahweh, of the only true God. It communicates of his love, of his, of, as I said, his mercy, his grace, his justice, his power, his wisdom, and so on. It all bears witness to his glory. The inherent attributes of God are put on display. This big, heavy boulder, so to speak, leaves a mark and it's impressive for all who can see. What is the response of the beholder? What is the response of those who see the impression? God is an invisible God. God is spirit. No one has seen God and lived. But he's known through how he reveals himself to his people. And so what is the response of the one who sees the glory, the manifest glory of God? Beloved, that impression ought to pierce the heart to the very core. And the only rightful response from any man, woman, and child is to ascribe or to give glory to God. That's not to add to his glory. We said earlier, he is perfect in his being. You cannot add to him. You cannot put anything more. God cannot grow in glory. He's all glorious. He's, he's full to the brim. No, we, we can't add to his glory. That cannot be, that cannot be possible. You can't add to perfection. But rather, we can give him glory in the sense that we give him praise. In the sense that we give him worship from the heart. In the sense that we give him loving devotion. In the sense that we commit our lives to obey him. In the sense that we exalt him in all that we do. We do what we do and we act in the way and we speak in the way. And we manifest our lives in the way that is fitting to his holy name. To ascribe glory is the natural response of a heart that has so utterly been impressed by the weightiness of God. Because God has so impressed our soul that it leaves an impressive mark that you and I cannot forbid. It cannot but render praise, beloved. It cannot but render esteem to a God who is worthy to be praised. You see, now when we bring it back to John chapter 12 and we consider our Lord's greatest desire, his motivation for enduring the cross, we see that there is nothing more fitting for him to desire that is greater than what is greatest of all. And that is that the Father be glorified. That through his work, that all would recognize that God is at work in his Son. And that God would be worshipped because of who he is through the work of his hands. That through Christ's finished work, beloved, his perfect active obedience and his obedience that caused him to lay down his life for his enemies, the greatness of God will be seen. The love of God will be seen. Mercy will be put on display. The wisdom of God will be put on display. The grace of God will be put on display. In a sense, the glory of God will be put on display through His Son and it will make such an impression. This is the heart of Christ that it would make a such impression in the hearts and the minds of the people that they cannot but wholeheartedly ascribe Him glory to His name. That's the heart of Jesus. That they cannot but see what God has done through His Son and stand back and say, Wow, what a great God. As the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, he says, So that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase in thanksgiving to the glory of God. It's all about God, beloved. All of it, it's about God. It's not about you or I, it is about God. 
You would have thought the first words of scripture would give that away. In the beginning, God. We're not the focal point. God is. His glory is. The veracity, the truth of these words are so humbling to the soul. Because when we think about the incarnation, quite often we, we think about the Lord being our substitute. And we looked at the details of that last week. And we may be tempted to think primary reason in his heart in the incarnation was to save me. It's not. That's a pill of humility for all of us. It is not. We see ourselves and our salvation is central in his thinking because we are selfish beings. Think about this for a moment. If that be true, then that would make you and I worthy of his sacrifice. No way. A drop of his blood is infinitely of more worth than every human being who's ever walked the planet, who ever will walk the planet. He's infinitely more glorious. No way. If that's our thinking, we've got to get over ourselves. Yes, absolutely, beloved. He loved us with an eternal love. Amen and praise God. Yes, absolutely. He's bestowed a mercy and grace that manifests to your life and mine, Christian. Absolutely. Praise the Lord. Yes, it's real and it's personal. Praise the Lord. I'm not going to dismiss that for a moment. The scripture testifies to that truth. But it's not because of you or because of me. It's not because we are inherently worthy in and of ourselves. It's because of who he is. Glorious. Christian, you've received the greatest blessing of salvation of your soul in order to be reconciled to the only true God of the universe, not because of who you are, but because of who He is. And because of who He is, Christ was willing to become your substitute. Listen, the cross ought never flatter you or I. The cross boasts of the glory of God in Christ Jesus. That is the highest end. That God be glorified in all things. As our example, our greatest motivation also should be the glory of God. Christian, brothers and sisters, those who have known, have come to know the Lord Jesus Christ through his Saving grace and have apprehended him by faith. You know what I'm talking about. You know the difference between the old life and now the new. You know the difference of that, the disposition of the heart that only sought after self. Could never get enough just to satisfy own self and a heart now that, that has been opened. Your eyes have been opened by the glory of God to give and to reveal the truth to your soul of how wicked your soul is and how, how you are in offense to God in your sin and unrighteousness and to receive him by faith. To be cleansed of your sin and to see him as the all-glorious Savior. And now to be given a brand new heart. A heart that no longer seeks for self. A heart that no longer is bound and dominated by sin. Those shackles have been broken. And a heart that now seeks to honor him. Because the greatest end is the glory of God. It's not you or I. The greatest end is that we used in his kingdom for his service to honor him. And to bring glory and praise to him. Beloved, this is the point. Jesus died upon the cross because God is worthy. Because the glory of God is absolute worthy. It is the absolute highest ends. As I said earlier, you and I are not worthy of his blood. You and I are not worthy of his sacrifice. If he was going to give us what we are worthy of, we would die forever in hell because of our sins. And so as Jesus is our example in this, in our relationships, one with the other, we ought to never treat our brothers, our sisters, husbands. You ought to never treat your wives based on what they deserve. Because wives, let me, let me say something, and this is going to be very offensive to you, but please take it from the Lord. 
No wife is worthy of the complete devotion of her husband to lay his life down for her. No wife in and of herself is worthy of that. And husbands, you're not off either. Because you're not worthy. No husband is ultimately and inherently worthy of his wife's complete submission to him as would honor the Lord. No. We're not worthy. If we're going to treat one another based or contingent upon what we're, our own worth is, beloved, destruction. Our relationships, one with the other, ought to be emulated by God's or Jesus' relationship with the Father. He has dealt with your soul, Christian, not based on your self-worth, but on the worth of God the Father and the glory of God the Father. And when you treat one another based upon the glory of God, which is the highest ends, you will never wrong your brother. You will never wrong your sister. Because you're not treating them based on their worth, but on the worth of God. And is He worthy? Absolutely He is worthy. Is he worthy of your love towards your spouse? Is he worthy of your love towards your brother and your sister? Of brethren, even your enemy. Are your enemies worthy of your love? No, they are not. But Christ is. God is. And because he says he is glorified and he's honored through your activity or through the disposition of your heart to be one of love towards the enemy and want to pray for those who persecute you, you do it because he's worthy, not because they're worthy. It is all about God in everything. Because the moment we start to treat one another based on what we are worth, that's a slippery slide. Because the moment I get offended, then you're no longer worthy of my love. You're no longer worthy of my care and my attention. Because I've been offended. But if I'm treating you based on my love for him and my zeal for his glory like Christ, then there's nothing you can do that ought to make me offended enough not to love you. That's the example that he gives us. It's impossible with man. But it's possible with God. Because he empowers us by his spirit to live to, live to that end. Let's continue. Verse 28. Jesus says, Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it. And I will glorify it again. Heaven opens. And God speaks. That would have been an absolute glorious setting. The question I ask here is how, how is the Father glorified? He says, I've, I have glorified it. Past, past tense. And then he speaks about the future. But first, he speaks about the past. How has the Father's name which is the zeal of our savior how has it been glorified well in a sense everything that god does is for his glory is it not we could speak of creation the heavens declare the glory of god do they not we can speak about his eternal power and his divine nature which is which is plain to all uh, we can speak about his his power and, and his provision to sustain the universe that he created by the word of his power. We can speak of his beauty that is seen in creation. We can see, speak of his wonder in his, in his order. We can speak of his wisdom. We can speak about what we can see with our eyes that all points to the majesty of our great God. To deny this, one would be a fool. Reading through the Old Covenant, Old Testament, we, we see so much more of how the Father has been glorified. We see He's glorified even through His dealing with sinful humanity. And we see His mercy all the way through. We, we may not understand it fully until we come to the New Testament. But, but God is a merciful God. He's, he's gracious even on His people. He gives them so much more than they deserve. And we know what mercy is. He doesn't give them what they deserve. We see his power demonstrated. We see his wisdom, his justice. We see him glorified in the revelation of his word because his word is glorious. It's eternal. It is unbroken. We see his glory in the manifest presence. When he was with Adam in the garden and then, and then with the covenant people of Israel that began on Sinai and then he led them by that glorious cloud through day and the pillar of fire in the night that pillar of fire that rested above the, the, the tabernacle and then later the, 
the temple, we, we see his glory in all these things. But what we have here, and although we see God's glory in all these things, in his law, in his, in his precepts, in the sacrificial system, and the list can go on, but, but what, what we have here is more to the context. I believe what, what God is saying is in response to, to Jesus. Response to the activity of Jesus in the incarnation. So we need to narrow it down to how the Father is glorified through his Son already. And it's clear to us, and we've gone through this many a times, it's the Father is absolutely glorified through the faultless obedience of his Son, the perfection of his Son. His Son is the exact representation of the Father. He opens his mouth, only truth comes out. His actions are only ever pleasing to the Lord, how he treated the word of the Father, how he taught. I mean, the people said no one taught the way Jesus taught. Not even the scribes are able to explain the scripture. But look at the utmost respect that Jesus had for the word of God. Scripture cannot be broken. Often people say, how do you know the Old Testament is fully the word of God? I say, go to Jesus What was Jesus' attitude to everything in the Old Testament? The 39 books were all available to him. Can you find a single time throughout the scripture that Jesus even casts a shadow of a doubt upon anything that is written in the Old? Absolute high authority of scripture in his mind. Absolute high respect. The Father's honored through that. The Father's honored through the power that was displayed in the Son through the signs and and the miracles. Nicodemus himself came to Jesus and said, you must have God on your side. Because no one can do these things apart from God being with him. God is honored through the reflection of the character of our Savior. Because that which God is, that is what Christ is. Love. Kindness. Merciful. Gracious. His forbearance. There's so much the Father has already been glorified through his Son. And then he says, and I will glorify it again. Beloved, that again is directly related to the reason for the appeal by our Lord Jesus. You see, his soul is troubled and Jesus lifts a prayer to the Father. You remember that? He says, my soul is troubled. And then he goes on to say, he goes on to, to say to the Father that, that glorify your name, Father. And the response that comes back from heaven is the Father says, I have glorified my name and I will glorify it again. So what's in, 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 the, in the foreview here is, is the cross of Christ. That's how the Father will be glorified again through Jesus Christ. It's what's to come. It's what's causing this anguish of his soul. It's what is causing this deep distress in the soul of our Savior. That's what the Father will be glorified in and through. But but the question is how? How? We need to think about the fall of man for a moment. We all know this. We all know that man has rebelled against God. Adam in the garden, do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For on the day you eat of it, die you shall die. What did Adam do? What did Eve do? They ate. Man rebelled against God. And everyone born in Adam, because Adam is our federal head, you've heard that explanation several times. And Romans chapter 5 articulates it, that everyone now born in Adam is born in unrighteousness. We're conceived in sin. We've inherited original sin, the sin of Adam. And you know what that means. That means that man, rather than praise God, rather than exalt the only true God of the universe, rather than honor him as the only true God, in our sin we have committed treason against the great king of the universe. And we've done it with a high hand. Can any one of us say that we haven't sinned intentionally? He might say, I don't want to blame Adam. It's not fair, Adam, Adam, but have we not ever sinned intentionally? And we've done it with a high hand. We scorned his name. We've assaulted his rule and we've mocked and dishonored, hear this, his glory. We have all sinned. We agree on that, don't we? 
All of us, we, we agree on that point. In fact, when we speak to an unbeliever in the course of our evangelism or with our friends and family who are not saved, we often say, look, this is the problem with humanity. We've all sinned, right? We've all sinned. And what is the text you normally take them to to prove that we have all sinned? Quite often it's Romans chapter 3, verse 23. That's the text that comes to our mind. That's the proof text that we go to. And that text tells us, for we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And then we say, great, there you go. We've made our point. We have all sinned and we're all worthy of hell. But I'm going to ask you to slow down for a minute. Let's go back there. Let's go back there and, and take, take notice of what is, what is written. Have you ever wondered why the verse reads that way? That we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You see, sin, we have sinned. And we've committed sin, treason against God. We have done that. But it's more than merely a case of disobedience. It's an assault at the glory of God. Our sin assaults the glory of God. In sin, man drags the glory of God through the mud, so to speak. Man was made in the image of God, in his likeness to glorify him. He was the crowning glory of all of God's creation. Man was supposed to be like God, act like God, speak like God, love like God, walk like God. Man was supposed to be like God in character. The glory of God was to have such an impression upon man's heart the revelation of God upon man, upon Adam, was to be so impressed upon the heart of Adam that Adam, that man would reflect the goodness and the wonder of God and his beauty and his glory and his righteousness and his holiness and his true knowledge forever. That reflection ought to render from the heart glory to God, to ascribe glory to God, to praise God, to bring him worship. That's what should have happened. In other words, beloved, all creation was to look upon man and see something of God in man. And then say, wow, how great is our God. But instead, man sinned. He despised God and he exchanged the glory of the immortal God for created things. Romans 1.23 Exchange the glory of God for idols. And this was a direct assault at the glory of God. And as a result, justice would necessitate that God would recompense. He must. Last week, remember, he must, he must, he must recompense. And recompense is to destroy man under the absolute weight, the heaviness of his glory. That's the punishment deserving of man. But that didn't happen in the garden. And you might say, wait a minute, that Adam and Eve were expelled from the presence of God. So they did die spiritually. I agree with you. And Adam and Eve also began to die and corrupt physically as well. And Adam only made it to 930. But he didn't die immediately. If God was going to recompense, then and there, complete annihilation. We don't see that in the text of Scripture. And the fact that we're still around means that God didn't. Right? He didn't punish immediately with the, with the full weight of justice that is bestowing a sin that is so offensive, that a sin that assaults the very glory of God, the infinite God. He ought to throw... Man into hell for, for eternity because their sin is infinitely offensive to an, a God who has no beginning and has no end. And his glory cannot be fathomed. But Adam and Eve remained alive. Why? Why didn't they receive the absolute full brunt of the wrath of God, the punishment they deserved? Let me take you back to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3, verse 23. You may open it if you like. It may help you. Romans 3, verse 23.
Romans chapter 3 from verse 23. For all, from the verse we all know. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, verse 24, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Now, when you listen to this, verse 25. Whom God, this is Christ, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Okay? We're all in agreement. We're all good so far. Now listen to the next part. This was to show. Here we go. There's a purpose statement here. There's a purpose statement. The reason Christ was sent and put forward as a propitiation by his blood... We're told this was to show. This was to show God's righteousness. Because in his divine forbearance, he passed over former sins. Why weren't Adam and Eve destroyed completely in the garden? The forbearance of God. But not only the forbearance. Because in his plan, looking forward, there will be a time. Where in the fullness of time, he will send forth his son. But let's continue. Verse 26. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Did you get that, beloved? Putting forward Jesus Christ as a propitiation for our sins was to show both the righteousness of God and the justice of God. In other words, to put his glory on display. The brother read earlier in Psalm, he said that the foundation of your throne, O God, is what? Righteousness and justice. The forbearance of God, essentially, was in order to, in the fullness of time, to put his glory on display. And to show his divine attributes, his absolute righteousness and his absolute justice. Because it may have looked in his patience, that he simply turned his head at the assault to his glory. Turned his head at man who has dishonored him and dishonored his glory. But he didn't. He didn't. We're told he didn't. God was never okay with Adam's sin. He was never okay with any of the sins of the saints of the past or the, the sins of the reprobates. He was never okay with any of their sins. How can he be okay with man despising his glory? Never. But he was patient. And in his patience, in the fullness of time, he sent forth his son as a propitiation for our sins to crush his own son in place of sinners who have dishonored him. To crush his own son by pouring, pouring out his, his wrath in his divine forbearance that he patiently held and withheld and then poured it out upon his son because, because not only does his righteousness is going to be put on display, but also his justice, a just God, cannot look overlook sin. Recompense must take place. And the cost of sin must be borne. And it was borne upon his son and our Savior Jesus Christ so that God would be appeased completely. His righteousness revealed. His justice demonstrated and his Love for sinners, all revealed in that moment upon the cross. And the zeal for his glory, the highest end, he this upheld. And now we can make sense of it. Because the Apostle Paul tells us what took place. God was never okay with sin. Because sin is a direct assault at his glory. And that was the greatest justification in our Lord's mind and in his heart right here, right now, in that context in John chapter 12, as he looked towards his suffering and his death. That God was central in his mind, that the glory of God was so paramount in his thinking. It was all about God the Father, the Christ. In all Christ does, the Father is his primary focus, beloved. Yes, he loves you, Christian, but he loves you through his love. For the father yes the father loves you but he loves you through his love for the son we are recipients of the amazing grace and the mercy and the love of god because precisely because in them god is glorified because remember in and of ourselves we aren't worthy 
Beloved, the formal grounds of our salvation is the manifestation of the glory of God. It can't be any other way. What else in this universe is worthy of the shed blood of the incarnate Son of God? But this is where we benefit so greatly, beloved Christian. This God who is so valuable in and of himself, who so desires his own glory, because that is the greatest good, the greatest end. He's so wonderful that through his finished work or the finished work of his own son on our behalf, in his love, he's opened up his dwelling place once again to receive us, to have real communion with him. The veil has been torn from top to bottom and the glory of God that should have destroyed us is now open so that we can commune with the only true God of the universe through his son, Jesus Christ. Beloved, let me ask you this question. What impression does the weightiness of the glory of God make upon your soul? It ought to bring us to our knees. It ought to create in us a desire that is just like our Savior. To be willing to do anything that brings him glory. To ascribe all glory to the one who is worthy. Because there is no greater ends. And that's why when we read texts like Jesus opening his mouth and saying, My food is to do the will of the Father. My desire, my joy is to do his will. It makes sense. And it, and it should be ours. Oh yeah, it should be ours. This is the thing about scripture. It reveals. And when we come to the word, it either shows, it pierces, it's a double-edged sword, it pierces into our soul, into our heart, and it reveals what we ought to be like, and it reveals what we actually are like. Christian, Christian, if that's the case, that's called conviction. And when we're convicted of sin, if we are not what we ought to be, we come racing to Jesus Christ. You don't try to clean yourself on your own. You come racing to Christ. Lord, help me. This is what I should be. That everything, every goal, every motivation, the essence of what I do and why I do it should be for the glory of the only God. Through you, Jesus. I, I don't see that in my heart. I, I, I have a zeal for you, but I don't see it in this way. Then we come to him and say, Lord, help. And he's faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We come to him if there's conviction. We come to Christ and we say, Lord, help us. The enemy will say, and I've said this many times, go and clean yourself. Go brushing up. You've come to him on so many occasions. You've come to him and confessed your same sin over and over and over again. It's time now that you prove yourself and then come back. That's the enemy. Don't believe his lie. You come back because there's no power to overcome sin unless... Unless, beloved, you come at the feet of the cross. Because that's where forgiveness is. Anywhere else, you're on your own and it will lead to despair. You must come back to the feet of the cross because there is forgiveness of sins. There you have a saviour who has wide, wide open arms who says, Come, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, I'll give you. I'll give you rest. Let's just move on quickly and we'll just go to verse 29. I want us to see that everything that is taking place right here in this chapter is not done in a vacuum. It's all done before a massive crowd. We know that much. And so we see this here in verse 29. The crowd stood there and, and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. This is actually a very powerful object lesson for us, I think. And it's actually a sad reality. What seems to be so obvious, the heavens opening and the voice of God saying, I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. What seems so obvious is not so obvious for the crowd. And many, they did not recognize that voice. The apostle tells us that some, probably most likely the wage winner, the majority, said that it had thundered. 
that attributed what is absolutely supernatural. How can you, how can you describe the Father speaking from heaven other than supernatural? That's the only word I can come up with. A supernatural manifestation of the, of the voice, of the words of God from heaven. His own voice. And they attribute that, many if not most, attribute that voice to natural causes. It thundered. Likely there's no clouds. <laughs> I don't know, maybe there were, but they've come down and said it's thundered. Beloved, the heavens so declare the glory of God and yet... Man in the darkness of his heart will say, yep, big bang, 13.6 billion years ago. We can explain that away with natural causes. Give a few, give or take a few billion years. We can live with that. But don't give us God. Don't give us a creation. We won't buy that. Human life comes from primordial soup. Plus a few billion years, I think the scientists have changed now biogenetic carbon signatures or something along those lines, plus 3.6 billion years. Whatever it is, we can, just, we can explain it away through natural causes. Uh, that's okay. There is no God. Just believe us. What is so clearly the fingerprint of God, the only true God, and his glory and his beauty and his splendor and his absolute majesty. What is so clear is described away with foolish natural causes. And I think we see a little bit of man's heart in this text here. Others, on the other hand, we're told, they, they said that it was an angel that had spoke. That's better, right? That, that's better. I mean, that's great if angels, I mean, angels are God's ministering beings. And at least these people have attributed the voice to a supernatural uh, phenomenon. Maybe not. Maybe it's not a great deal better after all. You see, confusing the voice of God with that of a created angel is devastating. The word of angels cannot save you. The word of God can. This, this could be no more than spiritual mysticism that we see before us. Beloved, if it's not truth, it will destroy. You see, the scripture doesn't speak about this, this black and white and there's this nice little gray area. But no, it's either black or white. It's either truth of God or it's not. You might think I'm going a bit heavy on these people. Well, beloved, neither group actually perceived the words of our Lord. They didn't recognize it was the Father and neither group understood what he said. Those who heard thundering, as I said, attributed that noise to a natural phenomenon. They couldn't hear anything intelligible in that, in that noise, supposedly. And as far as those who professed that it was the angel or an angel, take notice of what Jesus says. Because I think the detail, the, the answer is in the detail here. Because Jesus says, Father, remember, this is a response to Jesus' prayer. Remember, Jesus is appealing to the Father. His soul is in anguish. And he's not backing back or backing down. And yet he comes to the Father and says, just be glorified. I'm, I'm good. Be glorified. And it's all worth it for me. And so as a response to the prayer of our Lord, Jesus' prayer is, Father, Father, who's he addressing? The Father. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven and the voice said, I. Who's the I? The Father. Jesus says, Father, glorify your name. The voice comes from heaven in response to the word of Jesus. And he says, I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. Oh, that's an angel speaking. No, it's not. It's not. They didn't understand what was said or who said it. The heavens open, the Father speaks. It's only ever happened three times. Once at the baptism of our Lord. Second, at the transfiguration, you remember. And right here in John chapter 12 is the third time in the earthly ministry of our Lord. The glory of the only true God on display as he opens his mouth and yet the people don't recognize what he says. So sad. Not to recognize it's God speaking, not to recognize this is his word. They don't recognize his glory. And the saddest reality is this, beloved. The reason why these people are gathered there, the reason why there's a multitude before our Lord, yes, it's the Passover, but the reason why they're listening to Jesus is because they want to coronate him as king. That's how the chapter began. 
They want to coronate this Jesus as king. And yet in a few days' time, they will realize and recognize that this Jesus is not the Messiah, is not the Messianic king that they thought him to be. And before long, day two, three at most, we don't exactly have a timestamp here, before long, they will send him or hand him over to be what? Crucified. Who did they hand over to be crucified? The absolute fullness of the glory of God. That's who they hand over to be crucified. The one who is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of his nature, who upholds the universe by the word of his power, Hebrews chapter 1. That's Christ. Or we're told here, the light of the knowledge of the glory of God that shines in the face of Jesus Christ. You cannot know the glory of God apart from Jesus. You cannot. Scripture says you cannot know apart from Christ. 2 Corinthians 4.6 He's the word who became flesh and dwelt among them. His glory is on display. Glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John 1.14 But they did not recognize Him. And a few verses later, no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made Him known, the fullness of the glory of God. God in flesh. And in their sin, they don't recognize Him. Not recognizing the voice of the Father from heaven is one thing. But to reject the fullness of the glory of God, God in flesh, oh, that's another. He made no weighty impression upon their soul. How devastating. And then our Lord says these very interesting words. This voice came for your sake, not mine. I have to admit, and I'll submit to you, this is quite an unusual thing to say in, the, in light of the context. You see, you would think that Jesus' appeal to the Father was to receive from the Father maybe a form of comfort because of what he's going through. We know in, back in Luke when he prays at Gethsemane, we're told that angels came and ministered to him and comforted him. You think the appeal that he makes to the Father in this sense would be, would be for his sake. But Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. This is not for my sake. Then it must be for the sake of the audience, the listeners. But this is the thing. Jesus knows. He's God in flesh. He knows. These people don't understand the voice of the Father. They don't recognize who it is that speaks these words. Jesus, they didn't get it. How, how is it that the Father spoke? For the sake of the audience or the listeners. I've read some explanations, but I'm not convinced. So can I tell you what I think? I think it is for their sake, as the Lord says, his truth. I think it's for their sake because it reveals the true state of their ignorant soul. I think it reveals that they are, in fact, still in darkness and ignorant of truth. Because at the very least, listen, these are the facts. These people know two things, based on what we, we're told. They know that something massive has just happened, whether it's thundering or an angel. So, so something, something has, has massive has, has taken place. Something happens and they know it. And they know right now this is a response to the prayer of Jesus who stands before them. This is not a coincidence that Jesus utters a prayer and appeal and then immediately the Father speaks from heaven. It's not a coincidence. And when Jesus says, this is for your sake, then, then he know, these people know something massive has taken place. The second detail that we have, and I'm almost done, is this. They know something massive has taken place but they don't know what it is or why it's taken place. They don't know why. They don't know what. But this they know for sure. He does. They don't know. But Jesus does. We don't have the answers. But Jesus does have the answer. Jesus does have the answers. Perhaps we should listen to him. Perhaps we should ask him some questions. Because something took place right now. We know something big took place. But we don't know what it is. It, he seems to know. Perhaps 
Perhaps we should appeal to him for answers. It's a simple logic that the Father has placed in the minds. If they would un- humbly ask, Jesus, please explain. You know, the last time the Father spoke from heaven, I mentioned it earlier, and I'll finish with this, is that the Mount Transfiguration, you know the story, so I won't recollect it to you, but you remember what the Father said? He made two massive points. The first he made was, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. What a wonderful point. This is my son. He's the object of my love and my pleasure. There's nothing about him I'm displeased with. He is perfect in all his ways. Point number one. Point number two, listen to him. Listen to him. I suspect, and I cannot be sure, but I suspect that voice came from heaven. To show the state of the soul of those around our Lord. To show the darkness of their heart. Their ignorance of spiritual truths. And to see the one who stands before them. Who is who is what? The way, the truth and the life. And then to know that he has the answers. And to humbly come to him and say, Jesus, please explain. And we will listen. In fact, Jesus will go on to explain in the next few verses of this chapter. And if they only listen and believe, salvation will come to their soul. The question is, I want to ask you right now, is what I've spoken all gibberish in your minds? Or has it resonated in your soul? Because if it's resonated in your soul, praise the Lord. Press into the Lord and give Him thanks and ask Him, ask him to continue the work. But if it's gibberish, if it doesn't make any sense, if there's no desires in here that I have explained and articulated, if there's no hint of light, no hint of life, then, beloved, come to Jesus. Come to Jesus. Come press into the Lord. He has the answers. He has salvation. There is no other name given under heaven by which man must be saved. Come to Christ. Believe upon him and see the manifest glory of God in the salvation of your soul. Let's pray.